Take your Bibles this morning, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter number one. That was a perfect song to sing as we introduce this sermon. We really didn't plan that, but uh, talking about the the mountains being leveled and and, uh, straightening straightening the path and and so forth, the call to repentance that we just sang about is uh, from a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, and that prophecy uh, is fulfilled as we're going to see in John the Baptist, and that's going to be the focus of our, our, our message this morning, is the work of John the Baptist and bearing witness to Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading at verse number 19 of John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And here is that citation from Isaiah. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And now let's go to John chapter 3, verse 22. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was baptizing in Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, 
and I must decrease. Who is John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist might be one of the most enigmatic figures in the Bible. Most Christians don't really seem to know what to do with him. And and yet when we stop and think about it, he appears in all four Gospels. Every Gospel writer recounts something of the ministry of John the Baptist. His, His role is prophesied, as we saw in what we just read, is prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus said of John the Baptist that those born of women, uh, there was no one greater than John. It's absolutely clear that John plays a significant role in God's plan and in the estimation of the apostles and in of the early church and most importantly of Jesus Christ himself. When we stop and reflect on John and his ministry, what we see really is that John played something of a transitional role. He prepares the way by acting as a voice sent from God who bears witness to Jesus Christ. And those two words are really important. If we were to summarize the ministry and the work of John the Baptist, those two words really need to be at the forefront. He prepares the way by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. You see in verse number 23 of our text in in chapter 1, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And so he's citing this passage from Isaiah and he's saying, that's who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We need to get ready for the work of God's salvation. Let me just read that passage from Isaiah 40. Verse number three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Prepare, get ready. God is about to do something. God is about to reveal himself in a unique way. And so we as God's people need to prepare. We need to get ready. Preparation, preparing the way, and then bearing witness. This word, to bear witness, is actually a word that's used all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus bears witness, God bears witness to Jesus, uh, and so forth and so on. There's a lot of times that that word is used, but most often it seems to be, especially in these early chapters, it seems to be used of John the Baptist. This was the role of John the Baptist. He came to bear witness about Jesus Christ. And so that's Precisely how he prepares the way is by bearing witness who Jesus is. Look at back at chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He came to prepare the way by bearing witness. Look again at verse number 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out. And you could see it once again in verse 34 that we read earlier. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So who is John? What is the role of John? Well, he came to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he did that precisely by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. This was necessary, and it was an important role for for a couple reasons. First of all, at this point in Israel's history, God has been silent for 400 years. All throughout the Old Testament, we see these great prophets, these, these great men of God who have been coming and bringing messages This is what God says. The word of the Lord came to me. This is what God wants you to do. This is what God is going to do. And and all throughout the Old Testament, the people didn't listen very often, but, but God was always speaking through some prophet. But He came to a point where He was going to bring judgment on Israel. And one of the judgments, and perhaps the most severe judgment that He brought on them, was that he ceased to send prophets. And so in the book of Malachi, we we have the ending of of this time in which God is speaking clearly to his people. And so 
these people that are alive in Jesus' day have, have not been accustomed to the experience of hearing from God. John, in one sense, then stands as the last prophet whose task was to proclaim the coming Messiah. In that sense, he's, he's no different than the prophets of old. However, he is unique in that he is blessed to see the fulfillment of his message. Like the other prophets, he declared the Messiah is coming, but unlike them, he doesn't stand at such a distance that he doesn't get to see the fulfillment of it. And so that's why I said John is sort of a transitional figure. All of the prophets prophesied about the coming Messiah. But John gets to be this last right before the coming of the Messiah and he gets to see Jesus actually come. He gets to see the fulfillment of the things that, that he's proclaiming. So John prepared the way by announcing a message from God which would ready the people for the coming of Jesus. And, and that's exactly what he did. Multitudes heard this message and repented and prepared themselves for the coming of the Messiah. A second thing I think that John does, and I won't spend much time on this, is, is that he is sort of an authorized authority uh, that bears witness to Christ, sort of confirming who Jesus is. And that's important because Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he, he comes into conflict with all the sort of God-ordained authority that was there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priest, all of them reject Jesus. They're, they're sort of the ones who are against him. They are the ones who actually end up leading uh, to the crucifixion and the rejection of Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist stands as sort of this outside the stream of those sources of authority, an authority of God who says, this is the Messiah. The high priest doesn't recognize it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the people that you usually go to, they're not recognizing this, but I am a prophet sent by God and I am confirming to you that this man is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. In all of this, then, John served a supremely important and an utterly unique role in redemptive history. There's no one else like John. There's no one else who played this role. And, and no one else can repeat what John did. And so as we study the gospel and we look at the, the John the Baptist, we think to ourselves, what do we do with this? And, and I think that's part of the, the issue that we come to with John the Baptist. It's like, yeah, there was this unique guy that came before Jesus and announced his coming. Okay, so what? Well, I would say this, the, the primary application for our consideration is to rejoice in the unique work of God that, that he gave to John uh, to do and, and delight in John's faithfulness in carrying out this task. And, and then from that, we can just simply say, isn't it wonderful how in God's redemptive plan, he uses faithful men and women, men like John the Baptist, to, to bring about his purposes in God's plan this strange figure this enigmatic figure this guy John doesn't talk about it the the gospel writer uh, but you know about him wearing uh, camel skin and, and eating locusts and and wild honey I mean this is sort of a, a, a wild kind of guy he's he's different but in God's plan John the Baptist played an indispensable role in revealing the Savior this is a wonderful thing. But as we reflect even more on John and his, his ministry, we see that though he served this utterly unique role in redemptive history, yet his relationship to Jesus Christ is not altogether different from our own. He came, it says, to bear witness about Jesus Christ. And he did that, yes, he did that in a unique way, a once-for-all kind of way in redemptive history that's unrepeatable. And yet, in, in this way, we can learn, I think, from John the Baptist as we seek to faithfully bear witness to Christ in our own day. Yes, in a lesser way. Yes, not in this once-for-all kind of unrepeatable way, the unique role that John the Baptist had. And yet, we are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ, are we not? 
This is, this is one of the things that God has called his children to do. Followers of Jesus Christ have been given a, a great commission to go and make disciples. And we make disciples by proclaiming and by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. So in that way, I think there is a connection to John the Baptist. And what I want to suggest to you, and we're actually going to look at this, um, not this week and next week, but for two weeks. Uh, we'll have a missionary next week, but the following week. What I think I see are, are four characteristics uh, of John's work in bearing witness to Christ uh, that I think we can take and apply to our own work of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to look just at the first one this morning, and then next week or next time that we come back to this, we'll look at the last three. But the first really, I think, is, is the most prominent as we look to uh, John. And that is the manner. So here, here are the four. There's the manner, the message, the mark, and the method. These are the four uh, characteristics of John's work and ministry of bearing witness to Christ. And there are four things that I think that we can emulate from John the Baptist. So this morning we're going to talk about the manner. And when I say manner, I mean the attitude or the way that he went about bearing witness to Christ. And, and what I think we see in John the Baptist, sort of the preeminent characteristic of his work and of his ministry, is that he recognized himself to be but a humble servant who is pointing others to Jesus Christ. That is to say, John recognized this work that I've been given to do is not about me. It's not about making much of me. It's not about building my platform. It's not about exalting myself. It's, it's none of that. My work is precisely found in, in the fact that I am here to make little of myself and to make much of Jesus Christ. That's my work. And I think we need to take our cue from that. I think humility... This humility that I've just described is perhaps the most prominent feature of John's ministry. Think about John the Baptist. And, and I'm going to have trouble all day discerning John, the writer of the gospel, is not John the Baptist. John, the apostle, wrote the gospel of John. John the Baptist is, is this other figure that we're discussing and that the apostle John wrote about. So uh, if you weren't confused yet, now you probably are, but... Uh, I, I'm probably going to mix those up all day. But think about John the Baptist. Think about the many reasons that he had really to kind of be exalted, to, to be puffed up, if, if you will. There were many things about John and his, his uniqueness uh, that could have led him to have an exalted sort of overestimation of himself. First of all, think about his miraculous birth and divinely given ministry. Now, in the Gospel writer, John does not reflect on and does not give us the account of John's birth. We find that in Luke. Uh, but, but when we look to Luke, one of the things that we see is that John the Baptist, like other important figures throughout the Bible, had really a supernatural birth. Uh, John's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah the priest, uh, were unable to have children they were like Abraham and Sarah. They were already well past the time when they should have had children. And yet God gave them this child, John the Baptist, because he had a special and unique work for him to do. We read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, when the angel appeared to Zechariah. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, this is interesting. He said, the angel shows up and said, hey, you prayed for something, and the, the answer to that prayer is going to happen. And so the question is, what did, what did Zechariah pray for? Because we're going to see Zechariah could hardly believe that he was going to have a child. You know, he and his wife were both past the age of childbearing years. So it seems almost kind of probable that he was not at that moment praying that they would have a child. So that means a couple things. One, it could mean that this was a prayer that he had prayed a long time ago when he was younger, perhaps, and he was praying that God would give him a child. And now years later, in God's timing and according to God's providence, God says, 
hey, you remember that prayer that you prayed all those years ago? I'm about to answer that prayer. That's one likely possibility. The other is that, that Zechariah is here doing his work as a priest, and he's praying for the people of Israel. He's praying for God's people, and he's praying that God would bring about salvation, that God would redeem his people. And, and at that very moment, the angel shows up, God has heard your prayer to redeem his people, and you're going to have a son, and this son is going to be the one who points to the Messiah. Both of those things could be true. Both of them fit the passage. But, but John clearly had a miraculous birth. God supernaturally acted in time and history to bring John the Baptist into being. He had a miraculous birth. He had a divinely given ministry. God declared that he would be a chosen instrument to bring about a great revival in Israel. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, continuing in that passage I was just reading a moment ago, and you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he goes on from there, uh, but, but we'll just make the point there. Here the angel says, what a statement this is. The angel says of John, he's going to be great before the Lord. This isn't the estimation of that he's going to have about himself that he's great. It isn't just that other people are going to think John the Baptist is great, although that, that was true. What this says is that he's going to be great before the Lord. God has a unique and a special work for him to do. God has supernaturally caused him to, to be born. And now he's got a, a, a very unique and a great work for him to do. And what is that work? He's going to be instrumental. He's going to be the human means, the human agency of turning many people to the Lord their God. Many of the children of Israel. In other words, he's going to bring about great revival and that's the other thing that John could have been puffed up about uh, is that he has great ministry success. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it tells us that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river of Jordan confessing their sins. He had great results. Here, it doesn't mean all without exception that every single person in Judea and, and, and in this region beyond the Jordan and in Jerusalem, that every single person went out to be baptized by him. But it means that people from all over this region, all over Jerusalem and all over Judea and, and even beyond the Jordan, all kinds of people were coming out to him and being baptized. He had great ministry success. The, the very thing that God had prophesied about John is coming true. He's going to turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Because of this, John also had broad support from the crowds. At one point, the crowds or the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, they're questioning him. And, and Jesus says, I've got a question for you. How about the baptism of John? Was that from God or was that of just of man? Was that something that John just decided to do? And they didn't want to answer him. And the reason they didn't want to answer him is because John was so popular. They knew if, if we say that this baptism was from God, then Jesus would say, why haven't you been baptized by John then? But if they say it's from man, uh, then, then they got themselves in front of all these crowds saying that they don't really approve of John the Baptist, and the people viewed John the Baptist as a prophet sent from God. So they refused to answer, answer Jesus. He had great ministry success. But above all that, perhaps the greatest thing is the affirmation of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 11. He says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Remember the prophecy that he will be great in, in the eyes of the Lord? And now here's exactly what we have. Jesus, who is the Lord, confirming that and saying, there's no human being who's ever been born who is greater than John the Baptist. Just imagine if John lived in our own day of self-promotion. And, and instant fame. John would be a social media influencer. 
He would be churning out best-selling books. His, his first one would probably be co-authored with his dad, Zachariah, about their experience with his supernatural birth and telling all about that. But, but he would write many, many more books. He would be headlining all the big-name religious conferences. He would have podcasts and a, a full slate of speaking engagements. John the Baptist would have an, an absolutely huge platform. He would indeed be a Christian celebrity. But John was about as different from modern Christian celebrity culture as one could be. At every point, at every turn, in every interaction that we see John in the Gospels, which is not many, but, but they, are, they are there, at every point, John sought to minimize rather than inflate people's perspective of him. The exact opposite of the way people are in our culture, sometimes even pastors and religious leaders in our own day. Uh, he, he was the exact opposite. At every point, he's saying, I'm not that important. I'm not that special. I'm not that great. I'm only here to point people to Jesus Christ. Humility is having really an accurate estimation of oneself in light of our own sin and weakness and in light of God's grace. And John was exemplary in this virtue. By God's grace, there doesn't seem to have been the least bit of self-aggrandizing, platform-building, reputation-exalting, self-promoting, or honor-seeking in John and in his ministry. Instead, in every way, he sought to lower people's expectations of him and to promote the honor and glory of Christ. Let, let me show you what I mean. Every, every detail about John seems to indicate this spirit of humility. First, John's humble view of himself intentionally deflected any self-glory. So, so John rightly, when they come to him and they say, who are you? We, we want to know that the religious leaders have sent sort of a, a group of people to ask him, we want to know who you are. We see you baptizing. We see you preaching. We see multitudes of people going out and being baptized by you. You've clearly got this influence. We've got to reckon with who you are because of this great influence that you have. So, so who, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And notice what he says in verse number 20. In verse number 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Jesus, or John rather, rightly denied any messianic status. I'm not the Christ. And, and he does it so redundantly. Uh, literally, one person says this, it could be translated, his response, he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. I don't want there being any ambiguity about this matter. I, I don't want you to leave with, with a question mark in your mind. So let me tell you about three different times really quickly. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And that might seem insignificant to us. Big deal. So he said he wasn't the Christ. But, but what we need to understand is, is that this was a big deal. The people in this day and time were eager for a Messiah. They were eager for a deliverer. They were eager for a, a Savior. And there had already been, in, in the history of Israel, there had already been multiple people who had kind of risen up, political slash religious leaders, who kind of claimed almost Messiah-like status. And a lot of people would get all excited and they would go after this person and they would have a lot of influence and a lot of clout. They would kind of become great and a lot of people had kind of reached that status and come and gone and and if John had in himself any desire for notoriety any desire for greatness any pride in John's heart would have led him I think to to kind of reach for that this is great isn't it there's so many people who are following me there's so many people multitudes of people are coming out to be baptized by me God has given me this work to do and if there was any pride in John the Baptist, he would have been lifted up. But he rightly says, I am not the Messiah. Not only that, John refused to identify himself with any significant prophet, prophetic figure. So they said, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not the Christ, are, are you Elijah? That comes from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where the Lord prophesied through Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And so based on that passage, the Jews of that day, they were looking for the Messiah and they thought before the Messiah comes, Elijah's going to come. That was significant because if you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah didn't die, right? You remember he was just taken up in the clouds and so they thought Elijah didn't die, God's going to send him back and uh, that's going to be sort of the marker that the Messiah is going to come. And they asked John, are, are you uh, Elijah? And he says, no. What's interesting there is that Jesus, and we won't read the passage, but you could read it in Matthew 17, 10 through 13. Jesus actually uh, uh, connects John the Baptist with Elijah and, and says that he was the Elijah-like figure who was to come. Not that he was literally Elijah, but, but he was like Elijah. He was the one who was to come. So was John mistaken or was he deceiving these people by saying that he was not the Messiah? It may be that John simply wasn't fully aware of the role that he had and, and how he connected to Old Testament prophecy. One commentator says this, Jesus apparently had a greater view of John's importance than he did. The, the reality is his response is true. He was not literally Elijah, which may have been why he answered in this way, because they might have had that misunderstanding that, that Elijah was literally going to return, and John saying, no, I'm not Elijah. And, and then Jesus later uh, connects him in, in a more figurative way. He was one like Elijah who came. But what we see here is, again, he's intentionally downplaying his role. Basically, he's saying, don't worry about who I am. I'm not that important. I'm not really anyone of significance. And, and so they press him in verse number 22. Well, tell us then who you are. We've got, we've got to give some kind of answer to the people that sent us in verse 22. They, they press him for the answer. And what does he say? I'm simply a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way. This is a prophecy that fits John's role. The voice in Isaiah is announcing that God is about to redeem His people. And that's the perfect description for John. He's just simply a voice who's saying, God's about to bring salvation. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you ready to meet the Messiah? I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Significantly, he, he chooses this term which the people of his day really had no kind of expectation. There, there were no messianic expectations wrapped up in the voice of, of one crying in the wilderness. It, it was a sort of a forgettable way to describe himself. Moreover, the, the title is just really anonymous. That There's hardly anything about it which would stoke any kind of wrong excitement or, or, or attach any significance to John. I'm just a voice. A.W. Pink says this, Christ was the Word. John was but the voice. The voice is simply the medium by which the Word is expressed and made known. And then he goes on to say, the Word endures after the voice is silent. John's saying, I'm just a voice. I'm just here to point you to Jesus Christ. John, in every way, pointed away from himself he refused to defend his authority. Why, why are you baptizing? You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Then, then why are you baptizing? In verse number 24, they, they press him. Why, who, who gave you this authority? And, and what you notice here is, is that John even diffuses that. Uh, he, he, he kind of pushes away from that. He, he refuses to even uh, kind of respond to that. L look at verse number 24 here. Now that they have been sent from the Pharisees, they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither, if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one among you, uh, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me. And he goes on from there. But do you see an answer to their question? Why are you baptizing? You're not the Christ. You're not the prophet. Why are you baptizing? And what is the answer? I baptize you with water. But one's coming after me, a, a person who's coming after me is greater than me, and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He doesn't even give an answer. He just, almost like a politician, he deflects the answer, yeah, I baptize. But that's not what's important. It doesn't matter about me. 
I'm not the focus here. There is someone coming after me. I'm not going to spend time arguing with you and defending my right or my authority to baptize because that's not what it's about. That's a diversion from my message. And my message is Jesus is coming. The Messiah is on His way and you need to get ready. John refuses to defend His authority. And John humbled himself in comparison with Christ. He humbled himself in comparison with Christ. Listen to this this comparison that he makes in verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. D.A. Carson says that in this culture, you had, you had uh, these teachers, these uh, masters that would kind of go around. They didn't have universities and colleges. If you wanted to learn, you would kind of go follow somebody and become their student, become their disciple. And, and D.A. Carson says that the, the custom in that day was that the expectation was that the disciple, or the teacher rather, could, could uh, require anything that he wanted of these students. They were sort of absolutely under his authority. But, but there was an exception. Uh, the, the teacher could not ask them to take off their shoes. Like that was the role of a slave. That, that was something that was so demeaning. Like if you're a disciple of somebody, they can ask you to do anything but, but not take off your shoes. But here John says, Jesus is so great. He, he's so wonderful that, that I actually am not even worthy to do something like take off his shoes, which is such a demeaning thing to begin with, such a lowly task. You see, John just constantly lifting up the Savior, lowering himself. Lifting up the Savior, lowering himself. Where did John get this humble view? What, what gave him this humility? Well, John's humble view of himself was produced by his exalted view of the Savior, of Christ. I'm not going to spend much time on this point because when we come back next week, we're going to talk about his message, the message of John the Baptist, and we'll cover many of these same things. But in verse 29, we we see that John understood that Jesus was the Redeemer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John understood that Jesus was the Savior. I'm not the Savior. He's the one to follow. He's the one to submit to. He's the one that needs the spotlight shine on him. Not me, because I cannot be your Savior. He understood that Jesus was the Savior. He understood that Jesus was divine in verse number 30. He says, this is the one who ranks before me because he was before me. He existed before me. Now, again, if you read the other Gospels, you find John knew that Jesus was older, or John was older than Jesus. John had been born before Jesus, and and yet John says of Jesus, he ranks before me because he was before me. Again, there's that word that we talked about the first week of this, he existed before me. And so he's pointing to uh, his divine, uh, his divinity. And then he understood that Jesus was the Messiah in verses 32 through 33. He's the one who has the Spirit, who abides on Him, and He's the one who's going to pour out the Spirit to God's people. So so John had this humble view of himself in light of Christ because he understood precisely who Jesus was. And thirdly, we see this morning that John's humble view of himself freed him to become obscure. Are you able to become obscure? Are, are you okay with people not knowing who you are? Are, are you okay with your role diminishing in, in various... Most of us aren't. Most of us want to have a name. Most of us want to be lifted up and, 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 and to have places of prominence. Most of us want to be remembered. But John the Baptist was exactly the opposite. Because of this humble view of himself, it freed him to become obscure. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not being great. With not being the, the focus of everything. Today, people view ministry often in terms of perpetual growth. Pastors are, are often seeking ways to sort of break the next barrier. 
They, they would love for you to think that that's because they have such a great desire for people to be saved and to come to know Christ. But often their methods tell the true story. They're seeking vain glory for themselves more than they're speaking, seeking the spiritual good of others. But John the Baptist was not so. His humility freed him not only to accept, but even to embrace the fact that his influence would fade dramatically. Most of us have a view of like, I'm going to get greater and greater and greater. I'm going to be lifted up. But John understood, I came and, and I've done this work. And as my work is finished, actually what's going to happen is my role is going to be diminished. And I'm, I'm going to be all but forgotten. We see this in verses 35 through 39 because what we see is that the disciples of John these great crowds who had come to follow John and some had actually come to follow him and, and be his disciples, what we find in verses 35 through 39 is that when Jesus shows up, people are like, John, it's been nice knowing you. You've been a great teacher. Thank you for everything, but I'm going to go follow him now. In fact, the Apostle John seems to be one of those disciples of John originally who then followed Christ. But they come and, and they just leave. We see this the next day again. John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. We're out of here. We're following Jesus. If he's the Lamb of God, if he's the Messiah, then that's who we're going to follow. And then in chapter 3, we read earlier, verses 22 through 26, and this is really a, a crucial passage here. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with him and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in presence. So the ministries of Jesus and, and John are overlapping here. And now in verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over pur purification. And they came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John, our numbers are down. It seems like we're not important. Everybody was following you. Everybody was pumped up for you. Everybody was coming to you to be baptized. Now this guy that you bore witness to, he's come on the scene and he's preaching and everyone's going after him. What's the deal here? What, what's going on? G John responds and he gives three statements. Three ways that he's thinking that, that allows him to be okay with that. Most of us would not be okay with that, would, it? would we? we? We would struggle with the fact that numbers are down. People aren't coming to us anymore. People aren't here. People are going somewhere else. The, what's, what's the deal with this? But listen to what John says. First of all, John understands that God is sovereign. Look at verse number 27. God is sovereign. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. What a profound statement. What a profound statement. You cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given to you by God. That's a humbling statement. If you, if you keep that statement in your mind, it keeps you balanced. When things are going bad, when things are going poorly, guess what? You can't receive one thing unless it's given to you by God. When, when things are going well, don't get too puffed up. Don't get too proud about yourself because you can't receive even one thing unless God has given to you. It's a gift of His grace. And John recognizes that. John recognizes the ministry that I had, the success that I had, all the people coming and being baptized. All of that was a gift of God's grace that I didn't deserve. And now, guess what? God has decided in His plan that it's time for the Messiah to come and everybody's following Him. And guess what? That has been given to Him by the sovereign plan of the Lord. And so what am I going to do? Am I going to stand back here and complain, why is God doing this? No. I, I receive what God had for me and now this Messiah has come and this is part of God's plan for what He has for Him. And because God's in control of all of this, I'm going to submit to it. God is sovereign. Secondly, Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the focus. You yourselves bear witness 
Bear me witness, John says, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So why are you asking me this? <laughs> why are you coming to me now and saying, look, they're following him. I've told you all along, I'm not the Messiah. My whole message was me pointing you to him. So, so I'm not the Messiah. He says in verse Number 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus is the focus. He uses an illustration on, on the wedding day. He uses the bridegroom here, the, the groom. He says on, on this wedding day, nobody tries to make themselves the spotlight. It's, it's the groom, it's the bride, that they're the focus. Everybody's rejoicing in them. Everybody's celebrating them. I, I'm not going to get up and try to make myself the, the highlight, make myself the, have the spotlight on me. That's not what it's all about. It's about the bride, it's about the, the groom. And that's where the focus needs to be. If you've seen The Office, you could think of Michael and how, how he does at, at the wedding that he goes to. Uh, I, I don't want to distract us from, from this, but it's one of the most awkward episodes of, of The Office because Michael goes to a wedding and he makes it all about himself. It's almost unbearable to watch uh, but because it's so bad. But how foolish is that? Who would do that? Who would show up to a wedding and try to take center stage away from the bride and the groom? And that's what John is saying here. Jesus is the groom. He's got the bride, His people. This is all about Him. It's not about me. What, am I going to stand up and throw a big fit because everybody's going after Christ and, and everybody's kind of leaving me in the dust, so to speak? He's the focus. We need to keep that mindset as well to remember it's all about Christ. And thirdly, this statement, all of that leads him to the third statement in verse number 30. He must increase and I must decrease. Verse number 30. He's got to get greater. He's got to become more well-known. His name needs to be proclaimed more and more and more, and mine less and less and less. Now that's a statement of humility, for sure on John's part, but that's just a statement of reality. He understood this was God's plan. God's plan was me, for me to prepare the way and point people to Christ, and now that that work is done, I have to become less. That's, if my job is done, if, I've, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, then, then it's going to become less and less about me, and it's going to become more and more about him. He must become greater. I must become lesser. But this is a statement I think that we need to weigh in, in our own lives. We need to recognize it needs to be more about Christ. Let me give you three application points this morning as we, we come to a close here. First of all, Ministry should be focused on Christ and not on us, not on church growth, not on self-promotion. We, we really should avoid anything that feeds into the modern day celebrity culture. I could preach in another entire sermon. You'll be thankful that I'm not going to on, on the celebrity culture of our day. And there's just such a tendency for people, God, to sort of give them a platform and, and it really all, all becomes about them. And, and there's even some men who I would say are good men that, that have fallen into that trap. We need to avoid that. We need to avoid that in our local church. It isn't about us. It isn't about Union Baptist Church. The work of ministry is about pointing people to Jesus Christ. It's not about me or Donnie or Jared or Jeffrey. It's not about Union Baptist Church. It's about Jesus Christ. And we, we can't have one thing that hasn't been given to us by God and nobody else can have anything else that has not been given to them by God. We need to decrease and He must increase. We're here to do the work of, of pointing people to Christ. He's the focus. It's, he's what it's all about. Ministry should be focused on Christ and not on church growth or promoting ourselves. Secondly, John's singular devotion to Christ should be ours. John, yes, he had a unique ministry of bearing Christ, bearing witness to Christ. It was a once-for-all, unrepeatable work that he was called to do. 
yet we have a work that is similar in, in kind, even if it's different in the measure. We are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ. You ever stop and think about why does God have you here? When God saves you, why doesn't he just take you to heaven? You're saved. That's where you're going. Glorification's the goal. What, why are you still here? Well, in part, there are probably multiple reasons we could give for that, but in part, you are here to bear witness to Jesus Christ. He has left you in this world to, to point people to the light of Jesus Christ. John didn't get distracted from that work. He, he was singularly devoted to the work of bearing witness to Jesus Christ, and that's what we need to do. Let's not lose Let's not lose focus. You are not here on this earth to build a 401k. You are not here to have a, a great big house. You are not here to have all kinds of success in your career. You are here first and foremost to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to point people to Jesus. Let us not lose that focus. Thirdly, we should have the humility of John the Baptist in recognizing that our lives are all about Jesus we must be people who who recognize as John says I'm not the light I'm here to bear witness about the light and listen in in our day of what we might call and people have termed expressive individualism where, where people think that the world is all about uh, me expressing my opinion and making myself known we ought to be people who say with John the Baptist I must decrease and he must increase we ought to be a people who understand what the world needs is not really you. I hate to say it like that. What the world needs is not me. Hallsville, Kentucky, Hancock County doesn't need Union Baptist Church. What they need is Jesus Christ. And we need to have that humility. We need to recognize in God's plan, he, he could call someone else to do this work. We are just instruments. We are just tools in God's hand to point other people to Jesus Christ. May we have that kind of humility. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the work that You have given us to do to bear witness to Christ. We, we recognize that in Your plan, uh, we, we don't stand in this unique, unrepeatable position that John the Baptist did, and yet we know that You have called us to bear witness, to make disciples in our community, and we pray, Lord, that You would work the, the same Spirit that was at work in John the Baptist, this, this humble, Christ-exalting Spirit. I pray that You would work that in me because I want to confess Lord, that I recognize it's not there. All too often, my focus is myself. I want to be great. I want to see success in ministry, not because I want people to come to Christ, but because I want, I want people to exalt me. I want to be lifted up. And I just confess that to you. And Lord, I'm certain that that's probably the case for others as well. I pray that you would help us to be humble. Help us to be those who are recognizing that, that our purpose here is to point others to Jesus Christ. Help us to be effective in that task. Help us to have this spirit of humility. And help us to be faithful to, to recognize we are not the Christ and to point others to Him, to the Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.